It's lovely to be with you. And like you, I feel really the absence of just not being able to be together because it's lovely to be together. But I want to share with you something that has encouraged my heart and I hope it'll encourage yours. You might like to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to read the first 11 verses. It's a very familiar passage. So let's read it together. The heading in my Bible is Jesus anointed at Bethany. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And we pray that God will add his blessing to the word. So let's just pray for a moment. Father, we're really grateful that we have the privilege again on this your day to meet together. We may be in different places, but as Graham has reminded us, that we are together because we're gathered around Jesus. And we thank you that you've given us your word. And we pray, Father, that as we look at it, that you'd help us to make sense of it. Not only to understand it, but to understand how it applies to us today, what it's saying to us. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would so help us that we might be able to respond in a way that will really honour you. So please answer our prayers as we bring one another before you, seeking your best blessings in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the context of this passage is really interesting. There were thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you know that the Passover was to remind the people that God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. You remember that passage, when I see the blood, I will pass over. So it was a time when they celebrated their deliverance from slavery. And you can imagine that emotions ran high. There was intense nationalistic feelings because they were occupied by the Romans at that time. And while they were celebrating deliverance from slavery in Egypt, 
they were thinking about deliverance from the yoke of Rome. And not only was that going on, but at the same time, the chief priests and teachers of the law were so angry with Jesus that they were determined to kill him. Oh, what is happening here? Oh, there we go. And it says in verses 1-2, now the Passover and the festival unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Well, that tells us that Jesus was quite popular with people, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law were threatened by him, so they schemed to arrest him secretly and to kill him. Jesus had preached his sermon on the signs of the end times and his, his return. Having done that, he left the temple and went to Bethany, which was about two miles away, two miles away from Jerusalem, and there he was invited to go to the house of a man called Simon the leper for a meal. Verse 3 says, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Well, what do we know about Simon? Who was he? Well, we really don't know anything other than the fact that he had been a leper and maybe Jesus had healed him. We're, we're, we're not told. So perhaps out of sheer gratitude, he invited Jesus to come to his home for a meal. Well, we get a little bit more detail in John's gospel. It says in um, John 12 verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So we take it from that, that Jesus was surrounded by people who cared for him who wanted to spend time with him, who had some kind of a regard for him. And it must have been a remarkable uh, meal. Can you just imagine the conversation? The people would have been saying, Lord, you've been teaching us about the end times and about your coming again on the clouds. Can you explain a little bit more? What's all that about, Lord? And uh, what about the signs of the end times? You know, could, could it be that the end times are kind of close, Lord? Those are the questions we're asking today, aren't they? And can you imagine what, with Lazarus there, people are going to say, hey, Lazarus, what was it like to be dead? And when were you first aware that Jesus was calling your name? And I guess Lazarus would have shared that, that perhaps of his experience of, of hearing the voice of the Lord and being empowered to try to come out of the tomb, but, but that he couldn't move because the grave clothes were wrapped around him and, and, and everybody was just so amazed. They couldn't move, but Lazarus was struggling and Jesus said, loose him and let him go. And, and Lazarus would have maybe shared what that experience was like. What an extraordinary time it would have been uh, having that meal together. And then something unforgettable happened. It says in verse 14, or in verse 3, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on 
his head. Well, uh, John helpfully adds some more details. It says, then Mary took about half a liter of Purinard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's very interesting that we come across Mary just three times in the Gospels. And each time we meet Mary, she's found at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Now, by placing this, this story between the mention of um, the chief priests and teachers of the law wanting to arrest Jesus in order to kill him, and the verses at the end of our reading about Judas wanting to betray him, uh, Mark is contrasting the treachery of Judas and the chief priests with the love and loyalty of Mary. And the ugliness of their sins makes the beauty of Mary's sacrifice even more meaningful. Now just picture for a moment Mary unexpectedly approaching her reclining Lord, bearing her priceless alabaster vase, probably imported from India, very likely a family heirloom. And then all of a sudden she, she snaps the neck of that vase and pours a generous portion of the perfume on Jesus' head, anointing him, and then pouring the rest of the contents on his feet, humbly, worshipfully wiping his feet with her hair. It was an intensely fervent expression of devotion, as fervent as found anywhere else in the scriptures. And we can assume that due to the intensity of her devotion and her focus on Jesus, that she'd given absolutely no thought as to what the others would think of her action. And thus, she was mortified by the unexpected response of the disciples. And here again, John gives us further insight because he tells us that Judas Iscariot, the keeper of the money, was the keeper of the money bag. And as soon as, and soon to be Jesus' betrayer, well, the, the objection originated with him, which the others picked up on. Some of the guests were indignant. Look at what they said. Why this waste of money? That's a really interesting word, that word waste, because we find it somewhere else in, in the scriptures. Where do we find it? Well, we, we find it in John 17, chapter 12. And Jesus is speaking and he says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, who was the son of destruction? Well, we know that was Judas, don't we? And what's really interesting is the word waste is the word there, the word destruction. Interesting. And it was applied to Judas. Now, Judas criticized Mary for wasting money, but he wasted his entire life. He wasted it. 
He said, Judas said, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. So it wasn't just Judas. Others joined in as well. You see, Judas was a man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he quickly calculated uh, the value of the perfume. He calculated the value. And besides, there were people in need of food and clothing in Jerusalem at that very time. As it was customary to give, give gifts on the evening of the Passover to the poor, it, this would have made a remarkable gift, and that's true. But he was complaining now that it was gone, it was sinfully wasted. All that was left was the evaporating uh, aroma of that perfume, and so they rebuked her harshly. I cringe a little bit at that word harshly. The Greeks, the Greek indicates that they snorted their indignation, indignation like angry horses. How humiliating was this for poor Mary? The disciples thought they knew the mind of Jesus, but they were badly mistaken because Jesus then put himself between Mary and her attackers, defending her with a heart-searching exposition, ending with these words. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. These words plumb any submissive heart, and I hope they take the measure of mine and yours as we sit under God's word. How did Jesus come to Mary's defense? Well, Jesus affirmed the beauty of our act. He said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Why did Jesus call it beautiful? Well, just hit the pause button for a moment. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Three times we find that expression, but do not have love, do not have love, do not have love. And then he tells us if we don't have love, we're like a, just a, 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 a gong or, or a clanging cymbal, a sound that dissipates and leaves nothing behind it. If I don't have love, I am nothing. If I don't have love, I gain nothing. You see, love is what makes a gift pleasing to God. And Mary's gift came from a heart that was overflowing with love for Jesus. John Calvin says that she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. Only in eternity, I think, would Mary understand the significance of her action. Now, I wonder, have there been moments when you have been nudged or moved to do something fine or noble, but somehow life has got in the way, or 
common sense challenges us. It may be we've just had a nudge to, to send somebody an email or a text message to encourage them. Maybe this week past, you just had a little impression that you ought to send Graham a text to thank him for all he does, or, or Nicola. But the thought slipped out of your mind and you never got round to it. Or perhaps you had a little nudge and maybe to give a gift to that missionary that you've prayed for off and on. But somehow life got in the way and it just drifted out of your mind and the possibility of a thing of beauty has been lost forever. Mary gave her gift with no thought of whether it was practical or sensible. And do you know something? Jesus has lots of strange things in his treasuries. He, he has a widow's mite, which, which he holds onto and treasures. He, he not only has a, a widow's mite in his treasury, he has a cup of water. Remember, he said, if you give a cup of water in my name, you will not lose your reward. So Jesus has cups of waters in his treasury, and he maybe has broken alabaster perfume containers in his treasury. But let me ask you this. Do you think he has anything of yours, anything of ours in his treasury? Jesus said in verse 7, the poor you will always have with you. And you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. The Lord is not arguing against us caring for the poor. That's something that we're supposed to do anyway. Do you remember that account in Matthew's gospel of the day of judgment when there's the division between the sheep and the goats? And do you remember he says to the sheep, come on my right side and and then he says to them the right he speaks to them and the righteous will answer lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you when did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you the king will reply truly i tell you that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Isn't that amazing? They'll say, How, when did we see you hungry, Lord? Or thirsty? How extraordinary what you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It is impossible to be true disciples without serving others. Jesus is not diminishing our obligation to care for the poor in saying you can help them at any time you want. He's implying an ongoing responsibility to help our, the poor. Our Lord's commendation to Mary for putting him above all else properly understood condemned an either-or approach to spirituality. Christians are to worship God and minister to others. The ideal is a lavish, contemplative, devotional life in which we love Christ so much that we pour ourselves out for others. One without the other falls short of the dynamic that Christ 
once for us. It's beautiful because Mary didn't give him the leftovers. It just says she did what she could. She did with lavish abandonment and not grudgingly, not a few drops here or there, but she poured the whole lot on Jesus' head at his feet. Complete sacrifice is the only adequate expression for a life that has been redeemed by God. Isn't that what Paul says to us in Romans? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Is our devotion to Christ costing us anything today? Jesus said of Mary that she did what she could. What about us? There's something else in this phrase. She did what she could, being the person she was, according to her personality and disposition. Mary followed her heart and snap went the neck of the bottle, out poured the the fortune, down came her hair. We've no trouble in dreaming exalted visions, but getting from the heart to the lips, from the heart to the hands, from the heart to the bank account, from the heart to the needy, that's another matter. We're very free with our dreaming. But the fragrance which is so honouring to him and refreshing to others doesn't come from giving half our heart or half our wallet or half our talents or some of our time or some of our ambition. Mary, she did what she could. And Jesus went on to praise Mary and he said she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, Jesus had often spoken about his death and the disciples weren't able to grasp it. It didn't fit into what they thought ought to happen. But Mary somehow seems to have accepted his teachings. And she realized that while she couldn't change what was about to happen, there were things that she could do. So Mary did what she could. Now, Jewish women considered their hair to be their glory. And Mary letting it down and drying Jesus' feet with it meant that all of her humanity, all of her glory was devoted to him in worship. And one can never know the ultimate significance of his or her devotion and service. We don't know what the outcomes might be. The widow with her two mites, never dreamt that anyone saw her offering, let alone that it would be recorded in scripture and become a challenge to people down through the the last 2,000 years. And those who fed the hungry never realized that they were feeding Christ. And Mary had not the slightest idea that more would be done for the poor 
with her wasted perfume than 10 million times a year's wages could ever do. The fragrance that was soon dissipated in the scentless air, but the deed smells sweet and blossoms forever. Good verse nine, I tell you, whatever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And the beauty of that fragrance wafts down through the centuries. And what does her beautiful act tell us that Jesus wants from us? What do you think? Well, I think he wants something beautiful. Beautiful because of its motivation. Beautiful because our hearts want to bring him glory. I want to read to you as I finish a little story from a book that's called Up With Worship by a lady called Anne Ortland. And Anne Ortland's husband, Ray, was the chaplain to the American Senate. And she writes in her little book, a while back, Ray preached on Mark 14, verse 3. Here came Mary, he said, with her alabaster vase of nard to dinner where Jesus was. She broke the bottle and poured it on him. An alabaster vase, milky white, veined smooth and precious and pure nard inside, gone forever. According to John 12, verse 3, the whole house became filled with a fragrance, some story. Christians file into church on a Sunday morning, one by one. They march in like separate alabaster vases, contained, self-sufficient, encased, individually complete. Contents undisclosed, no perfume emitting, their vases aren't bad looking. In fact, some of them are beautiful people and they become vase conscious, conscious of their own vase and of one another's. They're aware of clothes, of personalities, of positions in this world, of exteriors. So before and after church and maybe even sometimes during, they're apt to talk vase talk. Your ring is darling. What stone is that? Did you hear if Harry got the job? What's Lisa's boy doing for the summer? Is that all your old, your own hair? I may take tennis lessons if George wants to. Mary broke her vase. Broke it. How shocking, how controversial. Was everybody doing it? Was it a vase-breaking party? No. She did it all by herself. What happened then? Well, the obvious, all the contents were released forever. She could never hug her precious nard to herself again. Many bodies who file into church no doubt do so because they have Jesus inside of them. Precious, exciting, life-giving. But most of them keep him shut up and contained and closed all of their lives. And the air is full of nothing. They come to church and sit these long rows of cold, beautiful alabaster vases. Then the cold, beautiful alabaster vases get up and march out again, silently, or maybe 
talking their cold alabaster talk, to repeat the ritual week after week, year after year, unless they get too bored and just quit. The need for Christians everywhere, and nobody is exempt, is to be broken. The vase has to be smashed to let the life out. It will fill the room with sweetness and the congregation will be all broken shards mingling together for the first time. Of course it's awkward and scary to be broken. Of course it's easier to keep that cold alabaster front. It was costly for Mary too. The way to up is down. The Holy One lives among broken people. Christian, break your vase. Help your brothers and sisters break theirs. Split those exteriors and having have a smashing time and then life will begin to mingle and flow around you and fill the whole church with the fragrance of Jesus. When vases get broken, vase awareness goes. The wealthy tennis player has his arm around the asthmatic stamp collector. The black high school boy joshes freely with a wheeler dealer car salesman. Spirits commune with spirits. Interiors and exteriors mingle unselfconsciously because whole people are talking to whole people. Your ring is darling. What stone is that? I praise the Lord for the look on your face as you sang the hymn this morning. Did you hear if Harry got the job? Oh, I was praying and asking God to encourage him this week. What's Lisa's boy doing for the summer? I just have to tell you what I found in Isaiah 6 this morning. You must pray for me. The old temper really flared up yesterday. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for ministering to my daughter this week. You said what I couldn't say. The nard fills the air. Beautiful. Take a deep breath. If you know one another as broken people, you're ready to get on with the church service. What a passage of scripture this is. And this morning in truth, we have the opportunity of saying, Lord Jesus, would you just take me, Lord? And if this alabaster vase is just like my life, Lord, would it be smashed that the perfume that is Jesus, that beautiful aroma, might be released? Remember, we are the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved. Lord, would you release that perfume so that our our church fellowship, even though we're not able to be physically with one another, that there might be just that wonderful fragrance among us that would seep outside the building and waft through the community around about. That the reality of Christ might become apparent to those outside. Oh Lord, would you make that a reality in the New Beginnings Church family? Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for one another. We thank you for what you've done in our hearts and lives. We're all different, Lord, and our journeys have taken us in different paths. But we thank you that 
that you have brought us together this moment. And Lord, we pray that the beauty that, that is Jesus, which is concealed in us, might be revealed, as it were, through the breaking of the vase. And may the fellowship of the family be sweeter than it's ever been before. That we would journey together, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, of giving a helping hand to those who need it, and of being willing to receive a, a helping hand when we need it. And, oh God, help us, Father, to do this because we love you. Please, Lord, don't allow the fragrance of this moment to dissipate. May it linger in our hearts. And may it come to you as an expression of our love for you. And may it bring honor and glory to your great name. We ask these things, Father, in the precious, beautiful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.